This is a Sharp Old Hat podcast and my name is Chris. It has been a tremendous pleasure to talk to Vicky. Big shout out to Finola to get us together. Vicky is most insightful and chatting to her about the challenges humanity faces has been simply humbling because she is extremely compassionate and she really cares. Although she's rather soft-spoken, she carries a truly strong voice. It was an amazing experience for me. This is a conversation with Vicky Donnelly. So, um, what's this? Um, what's this institute you're working for? Um, well, I was working for the Galway One World Centre for years and years, 26 yeah. years actually, half my life in this small education centre that was set up in Galway, um, it must be uh, 30-something years ago, by some people who'd been working overseas, yeah. you know, in development. Sean Keneally was, the, I think, the first chairperson of it. And I think the realisation when they got home that a lot of the development struggles they were mm. seeing actually had their roots closer to home, you know, in terms of very banal sounding things like trade policies. Like we've all heard of fair trade now and mm-hmm. um, they wouldn't have had at the time. It would have been a bit niche. Um, but if there's some t- such a thing as fair trade, then obviously the flip side of that is that the vast majority or that a lot of trade that's taking place is on tr- terms that's really disadvantageous yeah. to the global south or the so-called developing world. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah, trade rules, uh, tax, I suppose, is becoming more prominent now, the understanding of what that, um, what Bono, I think, referred to as Ireland's clever and innovative kind of fac- facilitating of corporations to yeah. avoid tax um, has horrific repercussions in other countries in the global south, um, the imposition of debt. Yeah. So things like that, that's, that, that's been part of my work for for a long time now, just trying to look at causes of global poverty. Because mostly we get this charity frame over it, you know, that our hearts are moved and that's good. You know, obviously empathy and and wanting to help each other is a good thing. But charity just addresses symptoms and the idea of global education or development education or education for global citizenship, all these names for the job that I do that no one knows anyway, Um, just tries to look more at the root causes and think, how could we change them? Yeah. And do you do more research or do you actually go out then to people or did you go out to people, obviously you're not working there anymore, but and and talk about um, the, um, yeah, your findings basically? What's the role there? Yeah, not not research, but um, I work with either directly with young people in schools mm. or training teachers or student teachers. Nice. So I've been working with um, a few colleges doing student education for yeah. for years now. And um, my work with schools is my very favourite thing because when you're working with young people, they're kind of, they have a clarity that is just really refreshing. <laughs> a kind of, and, and actually primary schools is a delight, you know, that sense of it's not, that's not fair. That's yeah. not fair. I think it's very... Um, reassuring to me that there's a sense of fairness or justice that seems to be really inherent or it certainly yeah. kicks in very early and a, a willingness to to explore the complexities of that you know mm. small children like they realize but I want that thing yeah. but I, I know I should share yeah. you know so I've been really incredibly blessed to do that for yeah. so many years and thankfully I'm still doing it just yeah. with different organizations now 
But this is actually funny the way you mention it. Um, how actually young kids, like particularly primary school children, kind of respond to those questions you're posing to them, um, because that's essentially the lifeline or the contradiction of the lifeline of capitalism, yeah. where um, we're basically being told that's inherent, genetically inherent in all of us, that we want more. Yeah, and we're selfish. Which is not true. Yeah, no. There's such a big push to see human beings as just you know trash that we're selfish we're self-interested and yeah. um, you know we're all out for each just for ourselves mm. mind our own backs and that's you know from the position of an economist that's rational economic man who just mm. calculates everything and what a sad life that is the reality is we are gift-giving cooperative creatures that's been yeah. our history for millennia um, and I, I i feel maybe addicted to optimism sometimes yeah. but you know there's so much evidence of that that we we do come out with these qualities well, it means evident because it's in our self-interest to look after others. Yes. You know, it's yeah, it's not a contradiction. <laughs> very it? straightforward, isn't yeah. it? No, but I mean, if you're being told forever um, by people who actually have been told forever that we want more, we have to aspire to have more. Yes. You know, you, you, you buy a new car and as soon as you drive off the yard of the car dealer, you see the newer model mm -hmm. driving right in front of you and you haven't sat in the car for five minutes and you want that newer model. Mm -hmm. Because that's, your self-worth is tied into it somehow. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy shit. Like It really is. Uh, do, you, do you, like you would obviously then have studied psychology as well to a large degree? Um, no, I have never studied psychology. I mean, psychology is of interest in the sense that mm -hmm. looking at racism and, and other elements that tie into all the things yeah. you're talking about there. Um, uh, that, that comes up a lot, but no, I've never studied psychology. My master's was in um, equality, equality studies in UCD. So that's that's what you <laughs> study if you uh, really don't want to earn money. <laughs> <laughs> how do I how do I um, how do I relate to equality now? In this sense, is it uh, gender equality? Is it uh, ethnic equality, or is it just a very broad idea of um, equalizing people? Um, it was it was really broad. The 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 program at, at that university was really at UCD was really broad. I the reason I wanted to go there actually was because I heard the course director Kathleen Lynch speak at an event. As far as I remember, it was in Limerick, the college there, and she she just I just thought she was incredible. She was talking about um, doing research with women in Ballymun in Dublin. I don't know if you're familiar with that part of Dublin. Well, I've, I've been there, yeah. Yeah, and it's a really vibrant community, yeah. but really marginalised and has been, yeah. you know, marginalised for a long time. And, and people have been really given a raw deal uh -huh. there. So she's doing research on poverty with women in Ballymun and they were having one of their focus groups. And it wasn't the first time that she'd met some of those women. She'd met them on previous research projects. And uh, she was just recounting how one of the women kind of um, interrupted, I suppose, the, the, with a question of her own. And she said, you know, can I just see if I've got this straight, Kathleen? You've been given money, you've been given a grant to come and work with us, talk to us, study us, basically, to find out why we're poor. And she was a little bit embarrassed by the kind of the clarity, I suppose, of the question. And she said, yeah, I, I suppose, yes, if you want to put it like that, that's pretty much the situation. 
And the moment I went, oh, right, okay, can I just ask, has anyone ever thought to put money into researching why women in your community are rich? Because I can guarantee you there's a connection. <laughs> and this is good, actually. I thought that was just so beautifully framed and such an unusual, I mean, it's so self, you know, it's, it's so obvious, but that's yeah. not how we think about poverty. It's not how we're encouraged to think about poverty. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to study there. It took me 10 years to do yeah. that. Um, but I think that's also the what has been really um, energising about looking at global poverty, mm. um, what really motivates me. It's not accidental. It's not um, inevitable either. That's why I say I'm optimistic. Yeah. And it's interesting you say about young children. You know, there's a question sometimes as part of one of the workshops in schools that, mm. you know, true or false, is there enough food thrown out every day that if you could magically, yeah. you know, redistribute it, yeah. there'd be enough to feed every hungry person in the world. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, it's, and it's true at least mm -hmm. twice over. There's four times as much yeah. food wasted globally, but here in the so-called developed world, twice yeah. enough food thrown out. And um, I've just noticed that the younger they are, answering that question, younger children find it really hard to answer true to that question because they really find it hard to believe that if there wasn't, an, you know, if there was enough to go around, yeah. surely you adults, what's your problem? Like, why haven't you sorted this yet? <laughs> it's so clear for them, yeah. you know. But obviously their world is very small in terms of um, geography and radius, like, um, uh, you know, they just know um, their home, they know the playground, they know the school, and that's where the world ends really, like, yeah. you know. So <laughs> in that sense, for them, um, they see half or picture half a banana like you know she'll give it to someone else would be in that radius of a couple of hundred meters shall we say like so they don't have a concept of uh, their other continents well maybe i, I mean I, I i can remember as a really small child seeing pictures of famine in ethiopia mm. i think i got that there was other continents but oh, yeah. the idea that people would be starving in you know when yeah. there's enough food and i think it, it, for me, it was a really big moment, actually, um, in the 80s. I'm really, it's actually quite a reassurance that we're almost exactly the same age. So I know that our kind of <laughs> cultural references are similar. But remember Live Aid? Yeah, 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 was of that, course, yeah. Was that 83? I'm thinking it was like 83, I think it was 85 or something like that, yeah. Um, the first Live Aid. Uh, and my family had a, a fruit and vegetable shop in Dublin, mm. and we had to help obviously you know the family business you help out at the weekends you do yeah. your you do your bit you do your few hours at the uh -huh. weekend and my dad had just come back from the the market the van so i was unloading the van and um you know you had live aid going on famine in ethiopia um, another one and you know that the, all the that fundraising and i was totally into it because i was that really idealistic yeah. teenager i was so into it i did the 24-hour fast i did yeah. you know all that bought the single even though i hated that song and i still mm. hate it it makes me cry i hate it so much <laughs> but i was unloading the van and there was boxes and boxes and boxes of melons that were coming from yeah. ethiopia and what we called french beans yeah. these little boxes of so-called french beans coming from yeah. ethiopia and there's this moment you know it's this teenage girl looking at this going hang on this doesn't make sense and it was only my history classes that helped me to make sense of it but that famine in ireland where people starved were found at the side of the road with grass in their mouths yeah. even though food was being exported at the same time and that the highest number of deaths corresponded with yeah. the highest level of beef exports yeah. so that's why shaw i guess george bernard shaw wouldn't use the word famine for what took place in ireland what did he use 
I think he said you can't have famine in the land of plenty. I yeah. think the suggestion was, let's call okay. it by its proper name, let's call it the starvation. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it makes sense. Like, I mean, it's the same now with um, oranges. You know, they have no water in Spain. Like, you know, you've seen right. those, those pictures of those massive greenhouses. Like, I mean, they're not greenhouses, they are just cities like right. and um, they have no water so they need to basically water the oranges with imported like not uh, not um, from the actual area where the oranges are grown like um, have to get the water in to um, water the oranges and then they export them to a country where it's always raining you know it's just crazy shit of course no oranges in ireland they wouldn't grow like but just the sheer amount of yeah. water that's being shipped from a place because how, how much water is in an orange it's like i don't know 90 percent or something like that it's almost all water like and um shipping that out to the country where it always rains and then throwing it out here like nice. most of it like i mean when you squeeze the orange like you know that's just a little drop of what you you throw out and well over half of the actual volume of the fruit and the weight of the fruit you just throw in the bin like yeah, it does seem like we could organize ourselves a bit better yeah. if we put our minds to it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, well, how do you solve? Where would your where would your anger be? Your first step, if you were the boss of the world, to actually um, work towards eradicating eradicating poverty, because hmm. realistically speaking, like globally, we are not that poor as we were twenty years ago, as we were eighty years ago, as we were two hundred years ago. Where's the first step? Um, well, huge questions, but uh, I suppose I do see the potential for a reconfiguration of uh, trade rules, for example, and tax. We could absolutely overhaul the tax system, you know, just with transparency, even about account holders. Um, I was just reading this morning, actually, about um, Daphne, and now I can't remember her surname. The, the journalist from Malta who was assassinated in the car bomb oh, yeah, attack. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the interest, yeah. the, the power that is invested in, as I say, something that, that Bono characterizes as kind of clever and innovative. Yeah. I think there's, there's definitely better ways to handle this. Mm. It's not just that tax avoidance and tax evasion um, bleeds out, you know, revenue that should be going into yeah. the provision of essential services. It also just creates such a horrifically skewed power balance in society where you get these billionaires who then get lauded for their philanthropy. You know, yeah. I mean, that's feudalism. Yeah. Pay your taxes, you. Yeah. <laughs> you can swear. Yeah. Well, I, just, <laughs> I always I swear to our too much. <laughs> you know, so it's just, I think that would be it, automatically, it's that's yeah. something that we could do if we put our minds to it. Um, if, the, if the political will was there, and, and when, it's funny to say political will because that sounds like we're saying politicians need to do it, but I think we just need no. to demand, we really need to demand systems that serve people and that serve our planet as well because yeah. all of these things are tried, tied into massive extractivism. Yep that our planet can't take. I mean, we, we, that's indisputable. But of course, there's the, um, the symbiosis of um, the political caste and um, the industry. You know, that obviously there's so uh, 
linked kind of there's this many in many places there can no distinction be made between the decision makers uh, appointed by the electorate and the people who are actually making the decisions for them mm -hmm. you know? um, and I, I would imagine that education would be quite high up on your list as well um, well yeah yeah, it, would, it should be, shouldn't it? Yeah. But I suppose that's that's also a question in terms of education yeah. for what, yeah. you know, and, and I think the potential of education is just almost limitless and I would have yeah. huge hope that it could offer um, spaces to explore those kind of alternatives that you're talking about because, you know, much as I'd love to be given a magic wand and, you know, make myself yeah. the leader supreme, how wonderful, but... I think for young people to have a space to explore alternatives mm. um, because so often th that that very discussion is just foreclosed you know it's I mean that's another interesting thing uh. speaking to teenagers because I do have the the, the the privilege of speaking to them quite often and sometimes we're talking about the you know why don't we have um, ideas for doing things differently and I think back to when I was a teenager and the, and, okay, and so when we were teenagers yeah. and the, from my recollection is that the stereotype of us as teenagers, our generation of teenagers was we were massively idealistic. We wanted oh, to slave whales and rainforests yeah. and I was yeah. a member of Amnesty and Greenpeace and yeah. all those things and the poor bunnies in the animal testing laboratories, you know, we wanted to save all that and we were told not to be naive and we were told yeah. that, you know, we'd understand when we got older. But when you ask teenagers now what the stereotype is of their age group, what do you think they say? It's well, I would imagine. Um, see, this this is something that this particular generation has to deal with, and I'm glad that I'm the age I am now, mm -hmm. and don't have to go through this uh, this particular period in time to be a teenager with all those devices. Um, there, apathetic to a large degree. Um, obviously, we had our own you know peers and peer pressure to deal with as well like you know everybody wanted to be cool mm -hmm. when we were teenagers but it wasn't so much in your face you know you could find your own group your own tribe like do you remember the goths for example <laughs> you know with the sister. black <laughs> stuff like you know and they went off to the graveyard and listened to the cure but i mean you found your tribe somehow like and it could have been the the football guys or whatever it was like yeah and um, i think this so much more difficult um, with those devices now, like, you know, that a teenager would find it, yeah, would find him or herself in um, a position of apathy, really, and being to a large degree compared to our generation. And we weren't better people by no means, no. but um, in a position of isolation and therefore not caring too much. Mm. And of course, a few teenagers, like a smaller percentage, would still be out there and, you know, wave the red flag and all this. But that's what I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, that, that's close. To, I mean, that's pretty much what they answer, the idea that they're seen as apathetic, they're seen as generation selfie, that they're only interested in material things. And it's a really, it's a raw moment. It's a tender moment to ask young people that question. And then when I follow up by saying, is that true? And they're just like, no, it's really not true. We really care. And and, and you, we can see that. It's funny, the evidence is in front of our eyes. You know, it's like just prior to the pandemic, we had young people taking to the streets 
about probably the biggest threat to humanity that we've ever faced in terms of climate crisis. And as adults, we're pretty much, we've dropped the ball on that overall. Yeah. They're the ones, they're the ones that were refusing to accept that we are just going to go gently into that dark night, you know. Yeah. And they, you know, the, the, the election that was just before the pandemic, the European yeah. and local elections, they swung that for the Green Party. Yeah. If only the Green Party would have the sense to realise that it was handed to them by teenagers yeah. rather than the arrogance <laughs> of thinking they somehow did that themselves. I've just got such faith. And I don't, I don't subscribe to this idea that they're the ones that will get us out of this. I actually hate that narrative of like, the young yeah, people, no. it's going to take everyone to change everything. But I have such faith and I'm so inspired by the energy they bring to things and how they've transformed our ideas around gender. I mean, have you ever seen the like of it? It is just breathtaking. The stuff that they're looking at and going, no, that doesn't make sense. Um, it's, I, I can only imagine what it must have been like, you know, generations and generations ago when people were saying no actually race is not a real thing you know that's just a social construct <laughs> it's not biologically there and like, but no i can see the difference are you trying to tell me there isn't black people and white you know in the rage I, I, I just you know this is this must be our moment just going like okay you know we're trying to catch up with what you're showing us and what science is showing us so i've i've got massive yeah, I mean, in terms of, so to say education in a way, I think they are educating us, actually, in many, in many respects. Yeah, you're probably right. I, I like the way, like your enthusiasm, the way you um, expose me as being a grumpy old fart now. Look at my safe note, Jesus, I turned into that which I never wanted to be. <laughs> to us all <laughs> yeah but you like i only talk to my teenagers like you know at home and um well sometimes the less i talk to them the better i feel like and not all the time of course <laughs> but um yeah it's 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 true actually and especially when you are in contact with teenagers which are not your own like you know you probably have a much better understanding and a much better um i don't know approach to talk to them um, than i would have yeah, well, I do have two, I have two, I was going to say boys, but they're actually men now, yeah. you know, they're, they're just, just into adulthood. Um, but it is, yeah, it's always a privilege, isn't it? Just mm-hmm. um, because I suppose for, for years and years and years, just parenting takes up the vast majority of your energy. So I remember people used to say to me the very, very, very odd occasion yeah. I would go out and it wouldn't be more than once a year, actually, <laughs> not even close, probably. I remember people, you know, would say very kindly, like, oh, it's great to see you out. You should get out more, you know, have fun. And I'd be thinking, I probably shouldn't say it out loud, but like, <laughs> you guys are no competition for the amount of fun it is to hang around with the kids. You know, it's like being at home is way more fun. It's just endless. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, yeah. But uh, when, I, when I look at the education now, um, it's, it's, it's odd. When, when I grew up, like, we had the, um, you know, the Coca-Cola bottles, like, they mm-hmm. came in... in we're talking about the mid 70s when since i'm aware of it like um they came in a crate and you paid a deposit on the crate and you returned the empty bottles in that crate and Mm -hmm. got your money back what you paid as a deposit that meant basically it was recycled or you just got yourself a new crate and saved yourself the deposit but such a brilliant system and that was there since the uh, early 70s in berlin like um i think the um the the plastic bag levy came in when I was seven or eight, like, and when I see the amount of Mars bar wrappers and, and, you know, Supermax 
cops thrown away by droves of teenagers now like that's just sickening like yeah. we, we would have never had that idea because um, we were taught from a relatively young age in school as well as mm -hmm. at home you can't do that you know and a plastic bag costs money and um, the bottle goes because you get money back you know it's yeah and I, I sometimes I feel but again I generalize probably too much because you are more in touch with the teenagers than I am. <laughs> it seems to just really vary, you know, I, yeah. I find um, through, I, I do work with green schools now, the, one of the places I work now is with green schools, so the, the environmental programmes there, they get a really strong response from young people yeah. in primary and secondary. Um, and I suppose then to contrast that, you know, we have negotiations going on at a UN level now to yeah. try to bring in a treaty on plastic and it is being blocked and blocked yeah. and blocked by industry representatives. Yeah. You know, apparently at the last round, the Mexican delegate just got up and said, this is ridiculous, we can't do anything because we're being blocked before we even start speaking. Yeah. You're not allowing us to, um, to to establish even kind of rules for, for, for how we're going to engage here. And she, she said, well, I'm going to go into another room where we can have a conversation and see, can we actually make some progress in this? And half the delegates followed her. Uh, you know, you think, is that what teenagers are looking at? It's like squabbles about, you know, these yeah. existential threats. Yeah. So I think that is one of the things about the, the, the approach to education that I'm interested in, that a lot of the narratives focus around individual, individuals being the problem. Like we're greedy, we're messy, yeah. we're unaccountable, we're apathetic. Individuals being the problem and therefore individual solutions are the only things that we're really offered, you know. Um, so you, you recycle your stuff, Chris. And you make sure you turn off these lights before yeah. you leave the room. You make sure that your backyard is immaculate. Yeah. Um, so whether we're talking about racism or climate change, it's all about, you know, just being an individual. And I think that's, for one thing, that is isolating, you know, the idea that I'm yeah. on my own. Um, confronted, of course, the weight of the world feels just unbearable because there's one little individual, what can I do? I'm just a drop in the ocean. Whereas every significant change that has happened, everything we've won for humanity has been because of collective action. That's true. It's when we yeah. work collectively and that is such yeah. a different feeling, like I'm a drop in an ocean. What can we not do if we work together? What could we not achieve? That's true. And we forget, you know, like there is a reason children aren't sent up chimneys. There's a reason we have little things like weekends and sick pay. And, you know, people fought for those collectively, trade unions, you know, people um, coming together, insisting on something better. But the story of how that happened is usually, well, I should, I should be honest now, is Rodolfo Walsh, an Argentinian writer. Um, I don't know him no. He, well, the name actually gives us a clue about his heritage, yeah. part of his heritage at least, but I'm going to misquote him now because he was a writer and wrote beautifully. <laughs> but he more or less said that um, every new generation gets told the story of change, like how change came about, with the most important bits left out. <laughs> and then, th therefore, every new generation has to relearn those lessons from scratch and history becomes private property like everything else. So, you know, we get told that change happens because of an exceptional individual like Nelson Mandela or Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks is a really interesting one because, you know, I've met teachers who've said we literally have books on our shelves called things like the tired seamstress. And <laughs> it's the idea that Rosa Parks was tired that evening and didn't want to give her seat on the bus to a white man. So she refused to, you know, to sit or to, to, to yield her seat 
and therefore the civil rights movement. And what gets left out of that, you know, according to Rodolfo Walsh, is the whole story of collective planned strategic actions. Mm -hmm. The idea of, you know, um, the, the hundreds and hundreds of hours of lifts having to be organised every, every single day mm -hmm. to get people to work if they were boycotting the buses, that this went on for a year. It also involved legal challenges. You know, so the idea of, of strategy and people working collectively towards that is just yeah. not part of the story when you've got this exceptional individual that you and I could never imagine being like yeah. Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Um, but it's people, it's people who've made this happen. That's true, actually, yeah. Um, when I'm just thinking about um, the, um, like those exceptional people, let's just take Nelson Mandela or take Rosa Parks, like, um, but you need a focus point in order to galvanize people, to gather people, to to point them in the same direction. Like, and it doesn't doesn't mean that it's coming from the outside, but people need to gather around something, and therefore you need, you know, those exceptional people. I believe as a as a focus point, like not that those people necessarily, but then drive whatever is to follow. But um, sure, you get the idea of yeah. A, a, a figurehead or a spokesperson yeah. and or it could be a place you know true for true. that matter like yeah. yeah the civil rights activist ella barker uh, gives us this idea of um leaderful movements you know the idea that actually yeah. yes so you might have a figurehead you know you're you're dr martin luther king who becomes a really prominent kind of spokesperson but the, for the movement to have success yeah. um it it has to be, and, and you know, the flip side of that is very, is, is equally true, I suppose, you know, like, actually it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on this, but I was a little bit fascinated at school with um, how we were taught about the Holocaust and how we were talking about, taught about the rise of the Nazis. It was just, you know, in the books, it really, in primary school at least, it felt like this story of one really bad guy. One really bad guy, and at school yes. I used to think, I don't know, he looks like pretty inconsequential. I don't think he could have done all that on his own. So, yeah. so I remember being fascinated by, you know, we were doing school projects. This is actually going to be like a terrible confession of nerdiness, but school projects in sixth class in primary school, and you know, somebody was doing one about ponies, and somebody was doing one about whatever I and I was like who financed Hitler <laughs> <laughs> I mean I didn't make up the title I found that book and I was like and and the question really electrified me I thought mm -hmm. yeah how how was he supported to do that what were the interests and the what was the drive behind him you know and it wasn't um it was much more complex than than I would have thought you know it's just a load of anti-semites no you know it was um that's that's Absolutely genius for a twelve-year-old to um, understand the concept of um, motivation and finance of um, any matter, any cause, any objective. Um, like it took me, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years to understand, actually follow the money and then you get to the bottom of it or you're most likely to get to the bottom of it. What motivates people? What are their objectives to achieve something like, um, yeah, <laughs> this is ingenious. Well, but it's some, it's, I think that's education as well, isn't it? If somebody's prompting a question that yeah. they're not necessarily giving you answers because that's not education, but that kind of critical thinking, I suppose, is yeah. um, is so valuable to us. Just you know, why? Why is this happening? Yeah. What's 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 bringing this about? Who does this yeah. suit? You know, who wins and who loses if this 
is our dominant narrative um, or if this is the status quo right now um, and how can we change it? I think that's the best critical thinking question. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm very critical of um, uh, Irish education, the Irish education system in that sense, um, because we were taught, I mean, I told you uh, before we started recording that I was brought up by teachers who either lived through the Second World War as young adults and uh, the other half of the teachers was made up of uh, young people who were students in 68 and 69, the big revolts and the hippie stuff like. And um, But we were told by both groups of teachers equally um, to question everything, to question everyone, not to trust the teacher, not to trust yourself, not to trust the book. Try to gather information, um, weigh it up and come up with your own reasoning for why things or how things may have happened. Like, don't trust a report just because it says so in the newspaper, that's before the internet. Um, and I think there, there, there's, um, I find the Irish education system, from what I can observe, and I obviously can only observe my own kids, like, mm -hmm. but um, fall short of that, because I think that the students are um, molded into obedient little consumers. Okay. That's the impression I have. But again, I might be wrong. I might be just a grumpy old fart. <laughs> OLCs, obedient little consumers. Um, yeah, it's, well, I've admitted my addiction to optimism. Um, <laughs> I mean, I encounter amazing teachers every day of the week. You mm. know, there are some phenomenal teachers out sure. there in the same way that I think if we took a spin into A&E, yeah. we would find the most incredible health workers. But the system is really hard to get well in. I, yeah. I would agree, the education yeah. system, I don't know if it's just Ireland, but it's quite hard to learn in, if we think of learning as that more expansive idea that you've just described of, yeah. of having the freedom and encouragement to explore. There is so much pressure, particularly at secondary school level, there's so much pressure to, um, to perform in exams. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. Um, and obviously puberty, I mean, is not fun. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Was it not let's face it, nope, <laughs> didn't like that one bit. <laughs> but you know, it's a tricky time in your life, you know, so <laughs> everything is shit anyway. Like, I, I don't know, I yeah. just feel worried that my adolescence might still be waiting for me because I was just very boring, like I didn't, I didn't uh, yeah. do that. But no, we were definitely encouraged to object to anything like and when I hear what um, like the kids are trying to be non-confrontational or as much non-confrontational mm. as possible, just don't say boo, you get on and the points, yeah, what, what you're saying, like the points are very important, get good grades and there's a lot of pressure on them. Huge pressure, yeah. huge pressure and I think the cognitive dissonance for them as well where they're, they're you know, I, I do know some, some teenagers who've been saying just it feels like the elephant in the room that there's that the system is still very much geared towards you know performing yeah. the exam get your points get to college get yeah. the good job and th these will be young and climate consume. activists and consume and and the young climate activists are saying but you know by by really accepted you know data in terms of where the planet is going yeah. those jobs are not going to be in any way relevant by the time we graduate from this on this mythical journey you know and yeah. um, with the big pot of gold at the end of it um, and that's even leaving aside the more immediate kind of catastrophes I suppose that are happening around housing and people's yeah. access to such basic fundamental yeah. rights and um, when you commodify that yeah. it's it's it, 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 
I don't even have words for it because mm. this is this is so new. You know, it's like we didn't grow up in a utopia, but seeing tent villages around around <laughs> Ireland, like yeah. I've never seen this yeah. in my life before. It's shocking, like yeah. Well, I mean, we obviously were brought up in the sense, like our parents, like their parents before, um, that hopefully we will have it a little bit better than our parents and going back all those generations then. And we had the sense of future. Whereas, um, I mean, especially with the climate crisis, but I mean, all the shit that's going on in the world, particularly the last year, or even since the pandemic, like, if you just take that very short period of time, like, you know, um, I would, as a teenager, most certainly experience a sense of helplessness mm-hmm. and um, having no perspective, having no future. What's the point of it all? More so than any angst-ridden teenager had in the 1970s or 80s, like... Right. Yeah, I suppose for us, I mean, the the threat of nuclear annihilation was ever present, but that was some crazed individual with their finger hovering over a red button, right? And, you know, and and the the fear of that, I mean, I think that entered our nightmares. It was, it was, it was very present in our lives and it was a real threat. But that just seems almost quaint compared to the the prospect of, of just the annihilation of our habitat. Um, because, because why? Yeah. Well, I mean, the climate change, obviously, or the climate crisis is something that happens relatively gradual. I mean, we're seeing the effects stronger and stronger every year, like, mm-hmm. but um, it's still gradual, whereas um, the nuclear holocaust would have been a very binary thing. Yeah. It's either on or off. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in between, you yeah, know. it's all or nothing. So in that kind of in that sense we just basically acknowledged the threat of it all which was all around us um, and then just went about about our business like a five-year-old um, who learns that it's going to die eventually because it, his or her hamster just died or yes. granny just died well i die too yeah uh, oh look there's a butterfly <laughs> you know completely undismayed and unfaced like it's sure yeah, yeah, sure Let's carry on with it. And I think that's the way we kind of handled um, the the nuclear threats and the threat of nuclear war in our generation. That's what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Let's get on with uh, it. But um, what about... Th- th- there's one thing actually that I find amazing. They don't, see, they don't seem to have any Nazis here. <laughs> well. <laughs> well... What's your take on this? I'm just looking at Kinbara here now, and um, well, there is, I have noticed, I'm, I'm in Ireland now for um, over 30 years, like with a couple of breaks in between, but um, first came here in 92, I think. And um, th- there was always an underlying kind of, uh, put it mildly, conservatism. <laughs> uh, you know, um, but it, it was never overt. And um, now, Looking at the news, into the Irish news, yes, it's coming a little bit more to the fore to have um, an organized right in this country, but I haven't seen it yet. Like, personally, I haven't seen it yet. And here in Kenvara, it seems to be all hippie flower power, we all get on. <laughs> Would you have a different take on this? Um, gosh, well, I mean, Ireland was unfortunately... Uh, very accommodating of actual Nazis, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. I think back in was it 1938 with the Evian conference, yeah. 
um, was it President Roosevelt who had held this big international conference in the run-up to what we now think of as the Holocaust or yeah. call the Holocaust, um, but was you know a crisis that was already evident. You know, it was evident the way things were going for Jewish people, for Roma people, mm -hmm. for LGBT people, for trade unionists, mm -hmm. um, and others under Nazi occupation, um, and. I mean, probably to distract from the fact that he wasn't doing a lot, but this idea of, you know, the Jewish question and my gosh, the Irish delegate at that, you know, the Irish response yeah. to that crisis was horrific. Yeah. Um, but, you know, offering meagre few places for people if they converted to Christianity yeah. Yeah. or if they had um, a Nobel Prize, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like it was really it's such a shameful part yeah. of Irish history because getting away yeah. from the Nazis yeah. was not the problem at that point. You know, it's genocide doesn't start by wiping people out. It starts by pushing them out. So getting away from Nazis wasn't their problem. Finding somewhere to, that would accept them and Ireland's part in that is really shameful but after the second world war you probably know way more about this than me but they were really accommodating of nazis who were oh, yeah. i mean folan's the book company yeah. you know so we're talking about education <laughs> they didn't all go to chile and argentina no. and sometimes they came and set up educational publishing, yeah. publishing houses you know yeah. uh, fun fact um true. so so i think that kind of conservatism you know and, and um and, and obviously the catholic church being a big part of yeah. that of course. But I, but also, I, I take your point that um, Ireland, it seemed to be harder for um, or an organised kind of far right in the way that would have, you know, would have happened in, in Britain and, and elsewhere sure. to take root here. But yes, we are definitely seeing something gathering pace and yeah. it's been really disheartening to see that because yeah. even five, six years ago, um, they wouldn't have anything like the traction that they do now. I think the pandemic helped them a lot as well because they were really able to feed into um, a climate of fear and, of course. you know, uh, really to capitalise on um, people feeling isolated. Um, and, and, and obviously there's a great fascist notion of purity, right? Yeah. The idea that, you know, we don't want to contaminate our bodies with vaccines. So this is not a comment on anybody's yeah, view yeah. on vaccines or not. But in terms of those narratives, yeah, it's pretty grim. It's pretty yeah. grim. The idea that protecting people mm. was somehow a bad look, yeah. you know, call, and, and, and I think the government helped that by referring to them as restrictions. It was actually, that's something that was pointed out to me by people with underlying conditions, which they call their lives, yeah. you know, saying, yeah, um, with three women were writing about it and they were saying that when you frame them as restrictions then the person who lifts restrictions as a hero if you frame them as protections which is what they actually were then you better have a good reason and data to, to back you up to do that because they're they're necessary that's an interesting take actually yeah you're right the rhetoric alone makes such a big difference yeah yeah and the Never idea of individual freedoms being curtailed rather than hey we might need to yeah. for a while um, really change the way we do things. And the sense of solidarity, like my memory of, of lockdown, um, not at all to dismiss the suffering at mm. all, but there was a sense of solidarity around it. There was a sense oh, of huge. camaraderie huge. around it. And it could have been handled so differently, yeah. I think, to avoid the kind of isolation that um, that no doubt some people were subjected to. But this, yeah, so sorry, a long way around to the... the the, the, the way that um, immigration, obviously, and the far right have just um, seized on that on that issue and homelessness and brought that all into yeah. one kind of really heady mix. Yeah. Um, there was something that came out earlier 
at the was at the end of last year i think there was just data about uh homelessness and housing issues around europe and the rise in rents on average i'm really bad at numbers chris so forgive me but i think so am I. I think they said 18 percent was the average increase in rents around europe but in ireland this this figure is correct i do remember this one it was 82 <laughs> percent rent increase in the last decade no refugee is responsible for that and and in any case to be a refugee is a human right right yeah. so it's not that's that's they uh, people have a right to be here we have a of right course. to go elsewhere we're not safe yeah. but the idea of blaming and um, people who are desperate and vulnerable and have left everything of value behind them to seek safety. It's just such a cheap shot and it's horrific to see it growing legs, I suppose. And it's obviously the first time that Ireland, being a newly prosperous country, um, experiences uh, an influx of people as opposed to uh, our generation and the generations definitely before that would have left the country in order to find work in Britain, Australia, America, wherever. Like, um, So that was a new thing. But um, what I, as I say, I haven't personally heard it yet, apart from the odd racist joke, like, mm -hmm. um, but... I haven't heard anybody or seen anybody yet publicly um, displaying a far-right, overt attitude with purpose. Oh, I'm glad for you, yeah. uh, but I have, yeah. yeah. I think it was October, for example, just to think that yeah. one that first comes to my head. Um, there was um, a, a, a demonstration by, by far-right mm. activists or far-right groups. They They wanted to have a demonstration in Air Square in Galway. So there was a counter demonstration in, you know, and I'm very glad for them. I'm very grateful for, to them. So they weren't able to meet where they intended to meet, but they, you know, they, they regrouped and they marched down Shop Street, Chris. They marched down Shop Street uh, with a megaphone saying, How, how's the Irish first, Ireland for the Irish? And I just wanted to weep. Wow. Oh, that's, that's fucking horrible. Like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be used to it from Berlin, like, you know, that you have your clearly identifiable right-wingers, lefties, um, nerds and goths, like, but that people um, are clearly identifiable and they would voice their opinions and if they have a political agenda or a religious agenda for that matter, like, you know, they would be open and upfront about it and this sort of newly right-wing occurring formation in Ireland I just haven't seen it and what I find actually remarkable now going back to the youngsters like um, that they are really open-minded here um, and um, yeah, as I say I don't have that much contact with other teenagers other than my kids and their friends like but they really seem to be completely at ease with LGBTQ issues and with race and with country of origin if anything they're interested in or Where's your mother from? Oh, that's interesting. Mm. You know, um, they, they don't have it on their radar to be any other way. This it, is fine. It very is, encouraging. It is very encouraging. And overall, I think that's true. Um, but nevertheless, I think they're every bit as much um, susceptible to those narratives mm. as, as an adult would be. You know, if you're told that the reason you can't have X, Y or Z, mm. or you're told that this housing list is because of them, yeah. I, I, that is one thing that the far right is great at, is pointing fingers. They're really... They're low on solutions, but they're they're great on you know casting. That's what blame. they've always done. Like, it's what they've always done. And it done. works. It's and 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 in a sense, I mean, 
I'm just thinking aloud now, but the idea that they're new, I'm not so sure. I mean, these, as you've identified those conservative threads, because, I mean, when they sit on panels together, look who they are. Yeah. They're, they're, they're people who oppo oppose reproductive rights, you know, so people who were really determined to have that repeal of the Eighth yeah. Amendment um, undone. Um, they're people who, um, you know, have very conservative ideas around women's equality, uh, gender generally, um, they're very, um, in terms of class, they're really, you know, they've got some pretty regressive ideas. So th they're in not Ireland, that new. In terms of class? Oh, that's I think. actually, yeah. Because, I mean, Ireland strikes me as a, relatively speaking, classless uh, society. When I arrived here in the early 90s, um, it, it was really a little bit like Berlin because, of course, you had the blue-collar jobs, and the white-collar jobs or the jobless. But um, it, because the pop was such a great meeting point for everyone, young, old men, women, up and down, that it struck me as a classless society to the largest degree. Yeah, we exported yeah. our excess people. That's what we did for generations and generations. I mean, apparently there was some mention in the doll, a little kind of bit of worry when not enough people were emigrating. <laughs> so, you know, that that's a great way to kind of mm. dispel class conflict. <laughs> yeah. um, certainly growing up in Dublin, yeah. um, and I would have lived in a, a sort of fairly middle class area. Mm. But even in there, you had everything from embassies to houses that had only got indoor plumbing in quite recent time. Yeah. You know, class was a huge, very evident part mm. of our lives. And um, it, it determined access to education. It determined, you know, so much. Mm. Um, like, why do we still hear so few working class accents on the radio? Why mm. do we still... I, I think class is very present in Ireland. Maybe not to the same extent as our neighbours. Right? Yeah, exactly. I compare it now yeah. to Britain. That yeah. would be the most obvious comparison. Yeah. Like, yeah, and also they make it more obvious. I think they're actually quite oh, yeah. proud of it. And I think we do have this idea yeah. of being a classless society. But I... I I don't know whether working class communities would, mm. would see it that way. Um, well, I mean, there is the haves and the have little. You know, that is, that is the, the essence of what we started talking about, is poverty. And poverty then um, prevents you from uh, good health, good education, a long and happy life and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, but generally speaking, you should be able to overcome poverty or the relative poverty we experience in Ireland or Berlin for that matter um, within the society out of your own kind of um, or relying on your own ability and inclinations like I think that is much more um, possible in Ireland and maybe Germany than it would be for example in Britain that there's more social mobility yeah that's it's just my perception of things. But back to the Irish, right? Like this is, uh, I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's frightening stuff what I've seen now, um, particularly in light with refugees being put up um, all over the country in um, hotels or empty hostels or whatever mm -hmm. it is, and how then a local kind of resistance to this forms, which initially i could even understand that there's a certain fear of who is coming what's happening next but um and i've only seen it in the news i've not seen it personally but then 
the rhetoric changes very quickly. And I've seen some people shouting on the RTE news, what, what, what's going on here? Like, you know, this is where it's Oswald mostly, like, you know. Uh, what's, what's crazy shit, yeah. But yeah, yeah, and, and that's not, that, that's not only since the invasion of Ukraine, and I think yeah. what we're seeing actually, and, and I welcome it, that there was such a, such a clarity about what people needed fleeing um, from, from conflict, fleeing from war, um, that there was an understanding that people needed a decent roof over their heads, they needed some resources, they needed yeah. access to education, all these things were, were pretty much automatic. I was, I was in Dublin airport uh, picking up a family, a woman who was arriving with her two little girls, and coincidentally there was a, a man from the north with, with his teenage daughter waiting to pick up a woman with her two little kids and they both had the women that we were waiting for both had the same name so we were both standing there with the same <laughs> kind of you know um, name and they'd brought some flowers it was really sweet they were actually uh, going to be a host family for um for for their uh the person that was that they were waiting for but in, you know so we were chatting while we were waiting for them to come out and um we both got phone calls from the immigration uh staff you know the immigration uh, officers inside um asking about various paperwork you know they're here they don't have this form they don't have that form do you and he was on the phone to me do they have a you know an f whatever form it's got no no and he's got no 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 they don't have it. and it was in both cases they the the, the officer said to us okay we're just going to let them through just tell them to sort that out in the morning the kids look tired and the humanity of it was so yeah. touching you know it's people first paperwork later um an understanding that people weren't breaking the law that if you are trying to flee you don't it's understood that you might not have yeah. all your documents it's understood that you might not yeah. even have um that you might have fake documents that yeah. that's understood within the, the you know the, the, the system of, of refuge seeking yeah. safety and it was so heartening and yet i felt such a pull because i know so many people who've had the very opposite experience it's guilty until proven innocent mm. where the only crime it's not they have committed no crime other than the refusal to stay where they are and yeah. and perish and mm -hmm. um, and and it does seem so color-coded to to put it like that it's that you know how do you mean in terms of uh, pigmentation in terms of racism in terms of racism yeah i made that point a couple of times actually with Maeve kelly for example as well like and i, I I know too little about it, but at least it wasn't beyond my imagination to um, infer that there may have been actually a racist element in welcoming the Ukrainian refugees with much wider open arms than um, people, displaced people from sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I think it's something I've been so proud of to see the response in Ireland over a number of years. And they've been so, I think government policy has been dire, right? The direct provision system is dire. It, it just has to go. And it's, it's actually people from within that system themselves, like Massey, the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland, that group did so much to progress a kind of debate about the direct provision system. Um, and really, it's just COVID that uh, unfortunately came along at a point where they made so much progress in terms of getting that on the agenda. Um, it's it's a it's it's such a dehumanizing system. It is incarceration for profit, like yeah. that long history that we have in Ireland between yeah. Magdalen laundries and industrial yeah. schools. But 
having seen people really locked in, you know, open prisons where they really can't function, they can't have any kind of normal life for years on end and then are blamed for it on top of everything else. Well, that, that, that was actually, and I, I just used the word funny. Um, when we had the, uh, we were living in Berlin with the kids um, for a couple of years. In 2015, when the refugees, um, uh, over a million refugees came in 2015 from Hungary uh, to Germany from fleeing from the war in Syria. And um, that, that was the bulk of the refugees at the time. Uh, so we had refugee centers everywhere. Mm-hmm. And... The oddest thing happened, I mean, Berliners would be generally, whether they're on the right or on the left, they would be generally used to other cultures anyway. And um, I would have, uh, because they're in the neighborhood, I would have drinking bodies who would be fairly far on the right, not beyond the pale yet. And I always try to reel them back in again, um, yet um, fairly far on the right. But they suddenly had an understanding because they looked at the living conditions um, how those people are not killing each other because if my best buddies from the neighborhood like you know and myself would have been locked in those conditions for longer than 20 hours like we would go at each other you know and doing this for weeks and months on end being in bunk beds with 20 others like God, and, and there was all of a sudden an understanding um, from uh, in people on the far right. Hold on, uh, this is this is actually something we really have to think about. And once you make people think, then they can at least think themselves into someone else's shoes to some degree. And that was fantastic. Like, yeah, that is well, that's really heartening. I mean, so much these systems really demand. A kind of dehumanization that we not see people as fully human yeah. that we not see them as deserving therefore of, of the things that human beings need yeah. um and and that has been heartening to see community responses i mean kinbara is a lovely example i think you mm-hmm. had mave kelly in chatting to you recently you were saying yeah. there's so many people in kinbara that really have embraced this for a long time yeah. you know that um so I can't, I can't say that Kinvara was part of that idea that, you know, some refugees are good and some refugees, well, no, yeah. we'll burn down that refugee centre <laughs> rather than have them here. No, Ken, I, I think Kinvara has been really um, just so understanding of people's humanity and, and yeah. so much effort went in, I think, at here in Kinvara and, and then people from this community going and working in Greece, working in, yeah. um, in some other camps like in Calais. But I suppose, um, I mean, it is a, a very exceptional place in that sense. I mean, it is affluent. There's it's, no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah, we're talking about classless people, societies. So people have yeah. um, probably a higher level of education on average than in other places and are therefore um, not only uh, monetarily in a position to help, but they are um, much more inclined to to help and be open-minded towards new causes. Maybe. Uh, no, it, it's funny. That does help. It's, it's actually, my son was talking about this recently, and it, um, it, it, I think it relates to who tends to help, but he, yeah. was, he was speaking about it as a busker. Actually, he's busking around Europe at the moment. And he was saying it's always the more affluent areas where they really struggle to get them to get the <laughs> you know the few the few coins in the in yeah. the hat. He's saying it's the the people that look like they have a lot less yeah. are the ones that are the most generous. That seems to be 
Oh, that's a, a usually constant, the case. Yeah, I would have definitely seen that yeah. around um, refugee solidarity kind of appeals. There was, mm. um, but I think we, we were saying also about um, the situation in in Palestine and the bombardment of Gaza, and you know that that's that's something I suppose that Kinvara also has quite a long, quite a bit of history with. Yeah. Um, also. Um, with just the solidarity, I think. It could, yeah. Well, I think in Ireland generally there seems to be a kind of empathy there or a kind of an understanding of some of the complexity around um, the the is the conflict with with Israel and Palestine, and maybe our own history gives a little bit of insight into that. Yeah. I know if, if just quite often people who don't otherwise consider themselves political have sometimes just said. Yeah, like imagine if we'd been bombed because of what the IRA did yeah. or the UVF or, yeah, you know, yeah. whoever, an, an armed insurgency group, yeah. if the decision, like in retaliation for that atrocity mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, not disputing that these are atrocities, but in retaliation for that, we're going to yeah. bomb a civilian area yeah. um, where you can't get out. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's been a kind of whether sympathy or you know not exclusively in Ireland because our relatability has a relatability that is a better way of putting it actually and I, I suppose here in the village um, I think back to 2014 well even prior to that um, the bombardment in 2009 there was um, there was efforts to collect uh, medical Oh, yeah, right. equipment. Yeah, my my little son was involved in that actually. Cool. Um, he was six at the oh. time, and he it was his birthday, and we 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 both had the flu. We both had a really <laughs> nasty bug, so we were kind of curled up for a few days, and the Gaza was being was being hammered. So he was hearing it on the radio. He was asking questions, um, and when it came to his actual birthday, because we'd had to cancel his party, he took a torch and went around to the houses in our little community. Um, and he was quite afraid of the dark, so I was very <laughs> touched by him. He'd made a little tin with a cover on it saying, children in Gaza need help. Oh. And he went around <sighs> to our neighbours and asked wow. if they could spare like a couple of coins. He was yeah. very um, humble about it. and. Um, so I was getting all these texts coming from the neighbour going, oh, my heart, you know. Um, and one of them said to him, this is so good of you because war is so terrible. And he said, it's not a war when only one side has tanks. At six. Wow. wow. And one of the neighbours uh, worked for the HSE and she's a really gorgeous woman, big, generous heart. And she was, she got in touch and said that they're, you know, the... The materials that are out of date or about to go out of date, you know, they they get dumped. So all these connections were made through this, like this little six year old. He was he was actually taking quite a leading role in this of gathering these supplies. We took them in a van. They were as if it was a collection point in in Galway because they were trying to block the break the blockade. So they were being sent over. So I've never actually told my son that those supplies never reached. He's now like as I said, he's now an adult, but they they, they were never allowed to reach Gaza. But um, but people in Kinvara got really involved in that. But in 2014, when the bombardment was happening at that point, um, when over 2,000 people were killed over 51 days, I think, um, early on in that, it was John Griffin and Frank Nocton uh, just got in touch and said, like, can we sit down, let's sit down and have coffee and think, what can we do other than crying while we watch the news or just feeling wow. such a sense of despair? Even if it's 
tiny? Is there anything we can do? So obviously boycott, you know, is, is, is one of the tactics, one of the peaceful tactics that um, that has been called for. But it was, I think John, as far as I remember, had the idea that, well, yeah, but what if we don't just boycott things as individuals? What if all the businesses in Kinvara agreed mm. to boycott, not sell Israeli goods while this is happening? Um, so trying to organize people in Kinvara. Yeah, so we wrote, we, we put together a letter uh, at, at his kitchen table. We went around to all of the relevant businesses. So yeah. there was like 14, 15, 16 of them. And... Um, and we, we, we said, this is something we feel we could do as a community. Um, if all of the businesses agree, mm. we'll make a statement about it. If anyone doesn't want to, and there's no judgment, because it's an understanding as well, people are running businesses, it's, sure. it's totally, you know, we totally get it. But if all the businesses agree, we'll put out a statement. And they all did. And, um, and that was just quite a powerful, that was quite a powerful moment. I mean, without losing sight for a second that mm. we are a tiny tiny village yeah, yeah, of course. in a tiny country on the edge of the Atlantic. Yeah. So there's no um, illusion that this was yeah. a big gesture. But the idea of working collectively, like we were talking about earlier, like as a, you know, as a, as a person with your shopping basket, yeah. you can make decisions, but yeah. that's acting as a consumer, yeah. as you were saying, can be <laughs> consumed. Um, but when you act as a community, it feels really different. That's beautiful. So Absolutely. that was maintained for the, for the full length of the bombardment. So it was maintained for 51 days. And there were other things that came out of it. There was a fundraising concert afterwards, and Declan O'Rourke and Paddy Casey and Brian Kennedy, I think, were in the <laughs> in the community centre. The <laughs> Palestinian ambassador came. He spoke at local schools. He was at the market. Um, there was a the, the the I think it was might have been Kava, but there was a group of local artists anyway oh. made a connection with. Um, uh, a, a touring exhibition of artists from Gaza and right. uh, the exhibition was called Windows on Gaza and they hosted it in Kinvarat in windows wow. along the you know in shops in yeah. in empty in empty houses um, there was a, a Palestinian storyteller came Fida Taya she came and did an event with Little John Lee in the community centre. We showed documentaries, films. Turns out we have people in this village like who made award-winning documentaries <laughs> about Palestine. Um, like what else there was just there was there has been such an energy about it and that's great yeah but uh, why like how was this initially sparked like was it just because of news coverage or was there any particular uh, personal connection by someone in Kanvara who may have had a partner from Palestine or no, no my mum lived in Israel years ago <laughs> <laughs> but no no I think it was um, it, it actually maybe goes back to what we were talking about education and critical thinking yeah. and that one of the best critical thinking questions yeah. is can we look at this differently yeah. or could we do anything yeah. well I mean those days uh, number one Ireland had enough problems of its own uh, with the financial crisis uh, starting yeah. and um, obviously there was enough shit happening in the world like that it could have been some other cause so that was my question maybe someone one of the organisers or initial no. Initiators like had a, I don't know, friend, family, partner, whatever. Like, all right. No, I mean we, we've yeah. we've met people now. There was an amazing um, musician, uh, Raid Saeed. I think he's a percussionist, so he played in uh, Tully's one night with Brian <laughs> Fleming and a. Um, well, drums are always good. Phenomenal. I mean, he's uh, just extraordinary. But all the local musicians yeah. around him as well. It was just one of the best yeah. evenings ever. And I think this is. 
the, the power of of art and the power of music. And mm. you know, you were saying that Kinvara is. I, I think I think one of the things that makes Kinvara such a special place, and there's, I, I have many reasons to love this community, but. Um, we have a really disproportionate amount of very creative people. Yeah. <laughs> like we're just off the charts in terms of you cannot throw a stone without any musician and then it will ricochet off an artist, you know. It and, is crazy. And they're so I love it. They're so generous with yeah, their yeah. time, with their with their the, you know, the gifts that they share yeah. and and I, I think that counts for something. I think yeah. that counts for just a way of seeing the world, a way of relating to each other. Um, yeah. I don't want to romanticise it either because yeah. I know people need to earn a living. But um, Well, I mean, when we moved here, like my wife's from Mayo, like, and um, the kids were born in Galway. And uh, when we decided to come back from Berlin in 2019, live in Ireland, um, kind of like Kinvara for exactly that cosmopolitan village. <laughs> so, you know, it was just just there was something absolutely attractive about it like and it was like artists everywhere and music and all this like and I don't like trap music I say it again <laughs> um, but I, I just love the whole feel of it like and that's that's what attracted us to Canvas. Mm. we had absolutely no ties here and decided to settle down here like um, yeah it's, it's a fantastic place but this um, this 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 whole conflict that that we're seeing now like ever since last Saturday like you know I mean it's it has been a messy situation for almost four thousand years when you uh, consider it um, that's happening in that part of the world. But I have to give credit now to Leo Varadkar's statement he made yesterday. Did you see him? I actually um, didn't, and I wouldn't give him credit for much. So I hope you're going to convince don't. me. <laughs> I'm a rational anarchist. I I don't vote out of principle. Never voted. Don't like the whole concept. I go along with whatever's been put in front of me or not. Um, but uh, it was on Novara Media, actually, I saw it. It was taken from Irish television. And he was one of the very few Western or Western European um, heads of states or uh, heads of governments um, who actually had that balanced view and said, look, it was an atrocity uh, what happened there on Saturday in Israel. Um, it was a heinous act, um, yet that does not justify um, the collective punishment of people, um, neither morally nor legally. Absolutely illegal. And yeah. he was one of the few Western politicians, not just heads of government or mm -hmm. heads of states that came out with such a balanced statement and he was commended for that uh, statement by um, Novara News like and I, I thought it was actually you know that book actually nailed it yeah you know. that is that is heartening and and that is you know again not for a second to diminish the suffering of people who Absolutely. lost loved ones who who are fearful now of you know loved ones who are held hostage I mean there's, there is no there, there isn't language to to even I, I can't even imagine um there's no there's no need even to try to quantify that or sort of to measure it against somebody else's suffering but if we pull focus and look at there's no symmetry in the politics of that yeah. of that conflict there is no symmetry at all yeah. um in in terms of people being you know driven from their homes of not having the right to return of being subjected to horrific uh, conditions almost a ritualized form of humiliation and um, what is it less than four percent of the drinking water now in gaza is not drinkable this has been like a slow 
ethnic cleansing. This has yeah. been slow genocide in front of our eyes. And for Palestinian people, I think, to know th th that, that they can be treated like this in, view, in full view yeah. of the world, yeah. and not just that the world is standing by helplessly, yeah. but, you know, up until, I suppose, last year, um, Israel was the biggest recipient of US aid in the world. And the US aid budget is the biggest aid budget in the world. Yeah. So the biggest recipient of the biggest aid budget in the world, you know, every year for, for how many years, yeah. it's not an impoverished country. Yeah. Um, you know, so to, to arm that, to, con to condone it, to, to refuse to take action, that there is so much responsibility if, on the part of the West. I mean, there is blood on, on our yeah. hands, I think, uh, or of, of leadership at least, because we are seeing people on the street. We've seen people in you know, in Dublin and Galway around the world who I, I, I don't for a moment think that they're saying yay, you know, to what Hamas did. Absolutely not. I mean, any right thinking person sure. recognises that. But but when, when people are killed um, and they realise that their lives don't count, that they, you know, that that's not going to... Sorry, I'm just, I've, I've just taken myself in circles because it's just, it is so upsetting. Yeah. Well, I, f f f I may be callous in that sense that I obviously lost some of my own humanity over the years by um, watching the news. You know, it is, I mean, I read a lot, I, 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 I watch a lot. Um, and, you know, the more horrific shit you see, um, the more hard you get towards it, like, you know. Um, and because I'm interested in history and current affairs in economics, I, I would obviously dive very much into those topics and uh, have, have sort of have distanced myself or harmed myself emotionally uh, to, to some degree. But... Um, when I see the rhetoric that's been now applied, especially by Western leaders and by Western European leaders, um, Keir Starmer, for example, I mean, he's supposed to become the next Prime Minister of Britain, like, and all he could say, and he was in how many shows over the last two or three days, mm -hmm. and um, how many times was he asked to, um, whether he condones or if he would not condemn Israel's actions and the announced action. And he answers this stoically with Israel has the right to defend herself. I kind of go like, what the fuck is wrong with him? Like, you know, and that's that's German politicians. And in the front row, uh, singing the same song, like, and of, of course, there's a special relationship with between Germany and Israel because of the Holocaust, like, um, but uh, it's like the rhetoric, like, I, I just can't understand. I can't fathom this, that people cannot just say, as we just said, you know, Oliver Atka said yesterday, look at, um, it was a horrible crime committed on Saturday, but that does not justify the subsequent actions by the state of Israel. You know, yeah. What's so hard about it? I was trying to even, I was trying to think how would it look here? You know, what does, what does 40 odd kilometers look like locally? And I think it'd be more or less from Kilcolgan to Ballyvaughan. I, I thought the length, yeah, yeah, 25 miles. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not good with kilometers or roughly, and miles. Yeah. yeah, 40 kilometers. Yeah. 10 kilometers. Yeah, yeah. We wouldn't even hit Gort, I think, would we? And then put, oh. <laughs> then put 2.25 million people yeah. in that area yeah. and don't let them in or out. Yeah. Um, you know, one of your borders is the sea. Mm. Um, and then tell, uh, <laughs> tell two million of them to, to move um, closer to Ballyvaughan. You know, <laughs> it's just, uh, it's, 
during the last bombardment, um, I was working online, um, connecting with this young Palestinian artist called Malak Matar. Um, she started painting when she was 14, uh, when the, when, I think during the 2014 bombardment, or maybe even younger than that, I'm not sure which one at this stage. She had lived through several wars already, <coughs> basically. And um, she was describing how initially she couldn't speak, you know, the shock of uh, what was happening around her and seeing buildings being leveled, yeah. you know, families being wiped out. So she couldn't speak. Then she found some paint, paints, a set, a paint set in her school bag um, that she'd won as, in a competition. You know, um, so she started to paint really as a way to try to survive the uh, unspeakable trauma of living through bombardment. Um, and she sees painting now as a way to try to communicate Palestinian humanity. And that, um, and excuse me if I cry now, but that struck me that a young woman saw that as her task in the world to try to convince the rest of us that she, her family, her neighbours are human beings. And her, I actually brought it on my laptop. I know it's a podcast, so there's no point in showing you, you know, as part of this conversation. But her paintings are beautiful. They're so, they're really powerful. They're full of color. They're, they have so much dignity in them, um, and joy. And some of them are very raw. But it's so 2021 came around, and she was back visiting her family because she was studying in Turkey at the time, and she came back to visit her family. And another bombardment started and she was stuck. And so the calls that we had, we were making a couple of very simple videos together, just trying to have, you know, a bit like this, I suppose, a conversation yeah. from a war zone. And often we had to interrupt them. You know, we had uh, sort of webinars with teachers and so on. Um, Sometimes she just lost electricity or a bomb started falling. I mean, it's really, and, and she would stress, you know, this is not another world. We're a few hours away from you. You could hop on a plane and be with <laughs> us in a few hours. And this is happening in full view of everyone. And the idea of, you know, the international community, as far as they were concerned, the international community was, was just standing by and watching this happen. Well, I mean, obviously, um, the situation as uh, it had been established prior to Saturday um, had been a horrific one all along. Yes. It's not ever since Saturday or the subsequent uh, retaliation um, in the last couple of days that um, uh, Gaza and the West Bank had been a picnic for the Palestinians because it is just common from a legal point of view. It is, it is a completely untenable, uh, illegal situation. And, um, you know, the world has stood by for quite a long time because it is not one of the pressing issues. There is no oil in Gaza or in the West Bank or Israel for that matter. Um, there is not much interest in the whole area um, to be had by the West. So let them be at it and let Israel be the factor of stabilization and uh, sort of aircraft carrier in that region for the West. Yes, and, and your, you know, your, your, your security guard, yeah. you know, which is, which is no favor to Israeli people. And that's oh, what absolutely. the events of the last few days yeah. demonstrate so tragically. Yeah. And, you know, Israeli lives don't count actually <laughs> for 
for the US, or as, but as long as they're serving those kind of security interests, which are actually massive insecurity interests of for course. everybody else, um, it's yeah, it's um, it, it beggars belief, I suppose. But again, it comes back to the power of creativity, I suppose, the power of human beings working together, what solidarity yeah. means to people. Um, there's no easy answers to these things, but yep. retaining our humanity and, and a really strong commitment to to the belief that we can do better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Hopefully, like I mean, you're more optimistic than I am. I'm very cynical, probably. You know, that shows that I'm a lot older than you. But if you want to say, I hope you don't get there <laughs> oh, <laughs> to that cynicism. Like, um, I'm just thinking about another thing that happened in Canberra. Sorry, just because it, it just occurred to me that was one of the most wonderful things was um, a group of young footballers from Gaza came to visit Canberra. Right. They did a tour of Ireland. And one of their days was with us here in Canberra. There was um, the the uh, Canberra United uh, hosted us up mm. at the the or all of us, you know, hosted the the whole community up yeah. at the football pitch. And they held a load of games. There was a circus tent there. There was you know mm. people sort of put on barbecues. Mm. Uh, the weather forecast for that day, I just remember being horrendous. Like, actually, it really didn't look like it was going to be... Yeah, I know. So I know surprising, usual. eh? <laughs> but it was kind of miraculous. Like, we literally had a circle of clear sky above us for the day. <laughs> and as the, you know, as the event started to wind down, we came to the sort of the, the finishing time, fuse top, but, you know, a bit of rain started to come in. But it, I, I remember people from the community being so welcoming and so supportive. Um... This was a football academy, right? So these were really they amazing. They were good. Like, yeah. yeah. And, but I was so proud of the Canberra teams because, it, you know, we didn't... Uh, we, 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 I don't know whether we scored any goals, actually. Uh, but if you'd watched a video of the games, you know, even when it got to something like a 11-0 or something, uh, <laughs> the players, they were just playing their little hearts out, like Canberra. Yeah. They just never gave up. They were so wholehearted. I was so proud of them. Of and course. they were so, um, you know, just dignified yeah. somehow. These kids, they were just brilliant. But a lot of people were really surprised, first of all, how small the players yeah. from Gaza were. Um, and they were also kind of puzzled why some, a couple of the kids... I'm not, not sure whether it was one or two of the kids couldn't come and one of the teachers, one of the accompanying adults couldn't come. And um, and so he, there was an assumption that it was the Irish authorities that wouldn't let them in. And mm. trying to explain, I was like, no, they were not able to leave. Mm. There, there were some people that weren't allowed to leave. Mm. And that was a big light bulb moment for, for some yeah. people. I thought, like, they were, oh, right. <laughs> Permission to leave your country didn't... Yeah hadn't occurred to, to, to people, some people, that, that, that it was suddenly brought home to them in a very stark kind of yeah. way. Uh, did, you, did you actually um, invite any um, members of Jewish communities? I believe there's only Jewish communities now left in Cork and Dublin, organized Jewish communities, uh, to those events when um, the people from Gaza visited in those days? Well, people were, I mean, there was just a general invitation like yeah. to, the, to the whole community. Yeah. I mean, there are some really inspirational um, Jewish-led peace groups, yeah. you know, Jewish Voices for Peace Absolutely, is the one yeah. you've got. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it's a, it's a little bit like, you know, growing up in Ireland in the 70s yeah. and the idea that Catholics and Protestants somehow, you know, 
that this was some kind of religious difference yeah. and and it, and it it wasn't you know it wasn't like a, some, I can't remember not. which comedian was saying that yeah. you didn't get kind of like young youth throwing petrol bombs and <laughs> Belfast going transubstantiation you know that this is some <laughs> massive difference between our faiths yeah. you know it was a political problem yeah, yeah. so I think for sure there's you know, within this I suppose the movement the Palestinian solidarity movement which is a justice movement mm. um, that there are there are definitely Jewish people involved in that in Ireland yeah, yeah. in a very prominent kind of way. Yeah. And I think you have Dr. Renit Lenton um, from Trinity. That's um, and I, I was disturbed on Saturday to see on the head the front page of the Guardian um, a big piece about this being a pogrom. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought that's yeah. actually I think that's quite a dangerous framing. I, you know, were people targeted by Hamas because they were Jewish? I think that's that's a, a really important question, but mm. I thought really dangerous kind of journalism, and um, that sort of justifies this idea it that is. somehow Jewish people yeah. are yeah. Um, have have been targeted just because, yeah. rather than recognizing it as a political problem, yeah. um, a really complex, long-running political problem. Yeah. Um, this is like I thought that was actually quite dangerous journalism it is absolutely and i mean see i'm an atheist um does that make me an anti-semite of course not and there are a lot of um atheist jews who are cultural jews and they mm -hmm. adhere to the customs and some of them are actually amazing like um but um yeah that that kind of rhetoric particularly in the guardian i mean which slipped fairly far to the main into the mainstream very comfortably um i just wonder why they have not more um page three girls like you know <laughs> but it's uh yeah that rhetoric is, is dangerous absolutely i mean it's, it's it's the same which kind of i find very disturbing as well to um to speak of that pearl harbor moment and uh, there was another one that that really ticked me off can't think of it now, but 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 that kind of rhetoric, of course, it's dangerous. Yeah. Oh, and it becomes yeah. habitual. Yeah. Well, it, it does. It does, and you it frames it things in enough. a certain kind of way yeah. that just bleeds it of, you know, yeah. any kind of meaningful context that would allow us a meaningful conversation and dialogue, yeah. and maybe take us closer towards some kind of meaningful resolution. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, I mean, um, yeah, it's it's a fucking mess over this. Not good. Maybe we should mention, um, and I'm saying it kind of apologetically because I don't know a single thing about it, but I yeah. know that um, a petition was being shared locally. Um, so maybe you know a little bit about it? Or no, absolutely not. See, I um, when Finola made the contact, like around shout out to Finola, um, I looked at the petition and then I thought we'd be talking about it. And then when you were so extremely kind to agree to come by short notice and do this with me, um, I had basically just looked at it. It's an open letter to uh, Joe Biden, uh, the Sheikh of Qatar, um, Erdogan was mentioned, and any other the German Chancellor and any other world leader, like. And it's it's I think it's 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 a worthwhile formulated kind of open letter which nobody should really have a problem with signing. Um, it would have been a good debate to put the question out there: Does it change anything? Is it a sensible thing to do? Not that the letter in itself is senseless, but is it a sensible thing to do? Yeah. That would have been a good debate. That but it's on a vase.org if people want it. Yeah. And then it, you're right, it is a good debate. I, I always yeah. come down in the end to thinking, 
it, it may may have minimal impact, but yeah. petition is better than no petition. You know, that I, I think whatever we can do. Well, it's the cynicism I don't like in myself where I say I'm I'm getting apathetic to when I'm getting callous because of um, the amount of information that's raining down on us, on me in that case. And um, at least those petitions, they fight the individual cynicism. I think in that sense, they serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Is Joey Biden reading this thing like, you know, show me next time he comes to Balina, I ask him. Like, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think like a little bit of a conversation or just signing something like this and flying through it and just fighting your own cynicism, I think that in itself is a small victory. Perhaps I, I actually agree. I agree that, um, yeah. and that needs to be fought.